Welcome to the Education, Career, and Beyond podcast. We've combined life experience with young adult drive and ambition. Are you just starting to college plan? Did you finish your education and wonder, now what? Join us in this lively discussion about the topics you need to know to create the next stage of your life's dreams, careers, finances, education, and more. Brought to you by Voice for Heroes 501c3. Okay, here we are, and I hope you are ready. Welcome back to the Education, Career, and Beyond podcast. And I can actually tell you that this episode is fire. It is absolutely going to be fire. As usual, we have the amazing Ed Sanderson with us, our co-host, and wonderful Capri Suarez as she takes this time from her studying and college to do this with us every week. And I'm so thankful. I'm Amy Scruggs, your co-host as well. And this week, if you read the show intro on this, or you've even looked at the notes, you know that this is the show with David Albin. He is the number one firewalker instructor in the U.S. over 19 years with Tony Robbins and started his fire instructing company in 2014. And we've got a lot of great questions to ask, and we're going to let him share the rest. David, thank you so much for being on the show today. Amy, thank you. You guys, this is awesome. What a, what a great show. and It's really an honor to be here, so I appreciate it very much. It's nice to meet you, Dave. Nice to meet you, Ed. Mm-hmm. Okay, you well, rock, we're going to kick it off with you. <laughs> I would like if you can just at least briefly give us some of that background because all those years with Tony Robbins and then going to firewalking, and then we're going to dive into that. But tell us your background first. Well, so I, I was born to a single mom in Hollywood, California. Uh, a couple couple months before I was born, my dad, my biological father, um, we don't really know what happened to him, but they put a plate in his head to save his life. He hit his head somehow. And uh, he complained of the pain all the time. He complained that he didn't know how much longer he could take it. And so two months before I was born, he told mom he was going to the grocery store and we never saw or heard from him again. Oh. Um, so mom, you know, there she was. She already had two boys. She had another one. She was living in a one-bedroom apartment with her mother, my grandmother, and another cousin. So there were six of us living in this tiny apartment. Now, mom wasn't afraid of work. That's for sure. She was, you know, she was born in during the Depression. Uh, she went through World War II. Um, and so, you know, back in those days, my parents and all my all my friends, you know, all their parents, I believe, was the greatest generation of all time. And I say that only because they did. They saved the world while all the men were out. You know, when my my the father that raised me uh, and I'll get into that in a minute, how that happened. He was in Europe fighting the Germans. My best friend's dad, same age, was in the Navy fighting the Japanese in Pearl Harbor. So wow. when, when all the men were fighting the war abroad, guess who was taking care of everything? <laughs> the women. <laughs> they did everything. All yes, of it. Right? They built Jeeps. They built tanks. They built trucks. They built ammunition. My mom, my biological mother, was known as Rosie the Riveter. She worked for McDonnell Douglas. She built airplanes. So when I was born, she was working at the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood as a server. So by the time I was five, mom said she couldn't keep up. She couldn't feed us. And so she did a very, very loving thing. She put me up for adoption and she asked her sister to adopt me. And she did. So I moved from Hollywood. I don't really remember any of this, but we moved from Hollywood. I moved from Hollywood to Long Beach, California to be raised by my aunt and uncle. Bob Albin. Uh, was career military. He was a highly decorated officer in World War II, and he he had a, a career in the U.S. Army and the National Guard. And so 
life was great. I mean, it was wonderful. You know, we, you know, we, we had, we had a nice house. We lived in East Long Beach, very close to the beach. Uh, this is the fifties and the sixties, which is, you know, can you imagine living anywhere else in, the, in Southern California in the sixties? Right. Right. Very nice. Um, and though my life took a turn when I was 11, um, when I was 11, uh, the first day of summer, 1964, mom, Brought me into the kitchen early in the morning when I got up. She said, David, we need to tell you something. And with tears in her eyes, she put her hand on my arm like this. And she said, David, what we need to tell you is we're not your parents. Okay. Well, what does that mean when you're 11 years old? You can't process that, right? It's like going outside and saying, look at the sky and it's blue. And you go, the sky's not blue. Yeah, well, it looks pretty blue to me. And, uh, you know, they look like my parents to me. And so that's my point. And uh, shortly after they told me this, you guys... Um, they both started drinking and they'd sworn off alcohol when they adopted me at five and six years later, they both started drinking. And, mm. you know, my, my life went Arr! and things got pretty bumpy really fast. Bob was very violent when he drank. Pat wasn't as violent, but it was still, it was, you know, fight, 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 all based on, on alcoholism. And so one day when they went to the grocery store, I knew where the booze was. They hid it in plain sight. I'm 11 years old. I want to know what's going on. What happened to these two amazing people when they drink this stuff? And I'm curious. So I went over and I uh, pulled the bottle out. It was in the cabinet. I had a coffee cup. I filled it up about halfway and boom, I downed it. And I never had a chance. I literally believe I was an alcoholic right on the spot at 11 years old. Because I started acting out alcoholically right there on the spot. Well, to move this forward, um, uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, they pulled me in uh, the first month uh, when we started back to school in September, and they brought me in and said, "Mr. Alvin, we're 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 gonna we're gonna dismiss you from our from our high school." So they expelled me. Um, so I literally went out that day and got a really good job. I got a job at the at the biggest grocery store in the state of California. And to, and to back up to give a little history here, I had an entrepreneurial spirit from the time I was young. Pat grew a, beautiful flowers in the backyard. She had this huge, giant um, garden, and it was all flowers, and they were beautiful. And so what Pat would do um, is she would go and she'd cut these flowers. And she, you know what she did? She cut them at an angle. She didn't cut them at the bottom. She cut them at an angle. And the reason she did that is it opened up more surface area for water to get into the flower to, to water it. And then she had a really beautiful eye to put these bouquets together. And then she would put them in a bucket for me. And then she put a little bit of 7-Up into the water. And what that did, it caused the, the flowers to last two weeks. And so out on the street corner, I went. And I started selling flowers on the street corner at 10, 11 years old. Uh, shortly about the same time, I got a paper route. And that's a job in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. Because you got to do it all. Right. Right. You got to work. You work white seven days a week. Yeah. Paper Rain came out every day. So uh, you had to go to the place where they dropped the papers off. You had to open the bundles. You had to fold the papers. You had to put a rubber band around them. You had to load them into your saddlebags, put them on your bicycle and then go and start delivering those papers. So and you had to collect all the money. You also had to go knock on doors when a new person would move into uh, the area, you know, to see if they wanted the newspaper. So it was a job, you know, but and it was but it was a business and, and you ran it like a business. And uh, I, I also, um, I lived across the street from a golf course. Well, what I learned about golfers is that most of them suck. <laughs> They're horrible, right? And they would hit balls over the fence. 
Well, I'd take my Stingray bicycle and I'd ride the perimeter of the, of the golf course. And guess what I find? Golf balls. I brought them back home, cleaned them up, went back to the golf course, went into the trash cans, took little boxes of the golf balls came in. And I would take all these balls and I would put them in, this, in these, these boxes and I'd go back into the parking lot of the golf course and sell them back to the golfers. So, you know, I guess I learned early on that there's money out there. Go get it. And so, um, but, it, you know, again, it's, when I was 11, out I went. I got a job. Uh, I got married a couple of times. And um, let me move this forward. On June 8th of 1988, um, I woke up that morning and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I was grossly addicted to heroin, cocaine, alcohol. You know, I was in bad shape. And, and I just wanted the pain to stop because I'm in excruciating emotional and physical pain. And so my idea was, well, commit suicide. Put a bullet in your head. And uh, thank goodness I was married to a woman who had three kids. And I, and I married her because I thought that the kids would help slow me down and, you know, stop this, this runaway freight train known as alcoholism and drug addiction. And uh, as I'm getting ready to pull the trigger, I'm like, you can't do that, man. Yeah, you'll be dead and your problems will be over, right? But what about them? You're killing them too. You can't do that, David. You're going to have to figure out another way. And so in a moment of compassion, I decided I wasn't going to do that because it would be horrible on them, PTSD, you know, all of it. Mm -hmm. Can't even imagine what they would have gone through had I done that. Um, and I said, well, then what are you going to do? Because you got to deal with the pain, you got to deal with your alcoholism. And the next thing, you guys, you know, the, the thought popped in my head call Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what's interesting about that? I didn't even know who AA was in that moment. I'd never been to a meeting. I didn't know anybody that was in AA. I didn't even know anything about it. Yet there was the thought. And so I did. I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got a, I got a beautiful human being on the other phone, on the phone. She, um, I affectionately call her Madge because she helped save my life. And I say Madge because she talked like this, <laughs> right? She, she probably smoked two packs of Pall Mall non-filters a day. And so, but she was the gatekeeper, right? She's the one that would make a decision whether she was going to call somebody to come pick you up. And that's exactly what she did. She called a man. He came, picked me up. He took me under his wing that day. He got me to a, a 1230 meeting. And I stayed all day. I went to a 4.30, a 6.30, and an 8.30 meeting. So I went to four meetings that first day. And when I was there, it was an all-men's group. And so when I was there, they gave me a book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on, they opened up the cover, and, and right there on the front page, they all signed it. They said, before you take that first drink, call one of us. And they put their first name and their phone number. And, they, and I left with that book. Well, one day turned into two. Two days turned into a week. A week turned into a month. And when I was sober for 30 days, they gave me a chip and it said one month of continuous sobriety. And then they gave me one at two months, three months, six months, nine months, and then one year. And this last June 8th here in 2023, I've celebrated 35 years. So what happened there is how I got into the personal development industry is that I had insomnia and I was up late all the time. You know, I, my sleep patterns were all over the place. I couldn't sleep at night. So there I was, 3.30 in the morning um, in, in 1988, and, and a young Tony Robbins is, is doing his infomercial with personal power. It's a 30-day program for total success, and, 
you know, he's all motivated and, you know, really enthusiastic. And you know what? I couldn't stand him because <laughs> I wasn't motivated. I thought he was pretty pompous, to be candid. Uh, but he said a couple things that got me. The first thing he said was, we'll do more to avoid pain than we will to gain pleasure. And I remember thinking, whoa, that's why I drank and used drugs. I was either trying to chase something pleasurable or I was trying to mask the pain that I was in. And then, of course, you get to a point where it doesn't do any of that. Um, and then the other thing he said was the, the, the way we make decisions in life is uh, out of two ways. One, out of inspiration or desperation. And I remember thinking, I'm pretty desperate. So I bought this program. And uh, they sent it to me. And it came in a nice big box. And it came on these little white things uh, called cassette tapes. Uh, Capri, you'll have to Google that to I see what, what those are. She goes, I know what those are. Uh, but it's funny. A lot of people don't have any idea, right, what an eight-track tape is or reel-to-reel or, or cassette. So anyway, you know, Tony sent me the program. I plugged it in. And I went through the program. I did what the man taught me to do, and it worked. Well, seven years later, a buddy of mine who got into Tony Robbins as well called me on the phone and said, hey, Albie, did you know that Tony Robbins is coming to town? And I said, no, I had no idea. And he goes, oh, man, come on, dude, let's go with me, please. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'll go with you. He goes, oh, great, I'll call you right back. He's gone. He calls back an hour later. And he said, done. We pick up the tickets at Will Call, and here's what they told us to do. Number one, bring snacks, because you're going to spend a lot of time in the room. <laughs> what an understatement that was. Number two, drink a lot of water. Make sure you stay thoroughly hydrated throughout the entire four-day uh, event that weekend. Uh, and then finally, he said, bring a good attitude and be ready to play full out. I said, well, Dan, how much was the ticket? And he said, $695. I went $700. By the way, this is 1995. What's that worth today? A lot. 7.2 million. I mean, I don't know. Right? <laughs> Buy Bitcoin. That's all I know. Um, and so I said, well, don't worry, Dan. I spent 700 bucks. I'll play full out. Well, just as he gets ready to get off the phone, right? He goes, oh, wait, I left out the most important part. I'm like, what? He goes, dude, we're going to be doing a firewalk. Now, I'm not saying anything, but this is what's going on in my head. And what, what's going on in my head was, oh, oh, hell no. No, 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 no. No, we're not doing any firewalk. That's not going to happen. Well, you know what's interesting? I didn't know what a firewalk was. I had no idea. Never even heard it in my life. But I'm saying no to something that I don't even know what it is. Right? And, and so that was how fear had been working in my life. My entire life, fear had been making almost all my decisions for me. And so I just pounded it off and said, yeah, Dan, no problem. Firewalk sounds interesting. All right, I'll see you then. Well, the day of the event comes. Tony takes the stage at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We get registered. We're in. Tony takes the stage at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And the next thing I know, it's after midnight. We've been in a room for 10 hours with Tony Robbins, right? Bring snacks. Remember that part? Yeah, <laughs> or you'll starve to death. So the next thing I know... Tony says, take your shoes off. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I see where you're going with that, pal. I'm not falling for that one. Well, I'm in a room with 3,500 people. And guess what they're doing? They're, they're taking their shoes, their shoes off. off. And I'm like, 
you people, no, don't fall for it. You know, don't go towards the light for God's sakes. And so now I've got a dilemma. 3,500 people, they're all taking their shoes off and I'm not. I'm going to go out there with my shoes on. They're all going to know. They're going to point at me. They're going to, oh, look at that guy. He's a coward, right? So I'm like, calm down. Just take your shoes off. And when you get out there, just go hide in the back. No one's going to know. Well, except for except for me, <laughs> right? Well, it gets worse. As he's getting ready to get, take you out into this big parking lot to do this firewalk, he gets everybody to start clapping and chanting. Right? So now everybody's going, yes. Yes, yes. And they're all walking out there screaming this, right? And I'm walking out there going, nope, uh-uh, nope, we're not going to be doing this, not tonight. Well, it gets worse because when you get out there, he's got African drummers, right? So now it's clapping and, and, and chanting and dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You, you guys, it's, it's a dog and pony show unlike anything you've ever seen. Well, how do you logistically firewalk 3,500 people? Right. Well, over in the corner of this giant parking lot, there's a fire burning, been burning all day. It's like 30 feet wide, 70 feet long, and they just add wood to it all day. And so it renders at the end of the night, at, at midnight, right? And so you've got this giant, beautiful pile of coals, and it's just gorgeous. Well, what do you do? What they do is they take wheelbarrows over to that pit, they load all these coals into a wheelbarrow. Then they bring a wheelbarrow in between two lanes of sod, of grass, three feet wide, 15 to 18 feet long. And they just take a shovel and they sprinkle those coals on top of that grass. And that's what you walk on. Well, I'm having none of it. Where am I? All the way in the back. Well, Tony Robbins knows that the firewalk is literally one of the most life-changing experiences any human can go through. And so he knows the paradigm shift is in that act. So he doesn't want you to miss it, right? Well, he also knows there's people like me hiding out of the back. So what's he do? <laughs> he trains people to come find you. And sure enough, I'm back there thinking I got it all figured out. And here comes this guy. And he makes eye contact with me. And I'm pretty sure Tony trains him. Once you make eye contact with these people, don't take your eyes off them. <laughs> this guy's just looked, he was staring at me, walking straight at me. He gets maybe 20 feet from me, and he kind of looks at me really funny, like there's something wrong with me, right? And he goes, are you okay? And when we're not okay, what do we say? Yes, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah, we're all good here. Nothing to see here. Move along, mister. And all of a sudden, this guy goes, well, hey, man, are you going to walk tonight? And I said, absolutely not. Like, what's wrong with you? Did you get the memo? And he goes, hey, man. He goes, hey, it's okay. No problem. Listen, man, we don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. And I thought, okay, this guy's going to get me out of here. Well, here's a stranger, you guys. I don't know who this guy is to this day. I wish I did. Because he changed my life and helped me to change a lot of other people's lives. Because the question he asked me was, well, wouldn't you at least like to watch? <laughs> I thought, yeah, sure, let's go watch these people burn their feet off. This should be entertaining. And so um, he goes, well, look, man, you can't see anything from back here. I'm 100 yards away, you guys. I can't see anything. I got 3,500 people standing in front of me. I got people clapping and chanting. I can hear it. I can hear the African drums. People are already firewalking. They're screaming and yelling and, cel and celebrating, you know, the experience. But I can't see physically anything. So he goes, well, just get in a line. <laughs> and eventually you'll get up there where you can see it. And he's telling the truth. He's, he's congruent with his word. And so I got in line. 
Well, I'm kind of walking along, walking along, and the next thing I know, this guy comes up to me, and he whispers in my ear, and he said, he knows when you're ready. When he says go, you go. <laughs> this guy just disappeared into the night. And I'm like, what was that? Who, who was that? What was that about? So I'm walking along, I'm walking along, you know, again, guys, it's intense. It's unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced in your life. And I get to a certain point, I can't see in front of me, but I can see at an angle. And, and all of a sudden I can see them and they're doing it. Every, every age, every race, every creed, every color, they're doing it. They are walking on coals, hot fire. And I'm mesmerized. I, I'm like in a trance. I can't take my eyes off it. Kind of like a... Um, you know, when you see a car accident, you go, oh, I'm not going to look at it, I'm not going to, and you look at it, right? Well, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm mesmerized. And I'm staring at it, and the next thing I know, I'm moving along, and boom, guess where I am? I'm at the front of the line. And so now I'm looking down, and the coals are on that lane, that fire lane, right? You can see them. They're bright red. They're glowing. The wheelbarrow's there. You can feel the heat coming off. My heart starts pounding. It's going to jump out of my chest any second. Well, there's a trainer standing right there. And all of a sudden, the trainer goes, eyes up. I bring my eyes up. Okay, no kidding. I'm in a room with Tony for 10 hours. Guess what he teaches everybody to do? Keep your eyes up. Don't stare at what you fear. Interesting distinction, right? My eyes are up. Look to the celebration end. All of a sudden, the trainer goes, squeeze your fist and say yes. And I went, yes. And he went, stronger. And I went, yes. Well, he could tell. He knew I was leaving a lot on the table. He could tell I was not in a peak state. So what did he do? He gets like in my face and screams at me. He goes, stronger! I threw my hands in the air and I screamed at the top of my lungs and he goes, go, go, go! Whoo! I took off. The guy came up. Hey, he knows when you're ready. When he says go, you go. Guess what? I went. Well, here's the first thing I learned about firewalking. When you take the first step, Oh, you'll take the second, third, fourth, and fifth. I guarantee you. <laughs> right? So, so there I am. I'm in the celebration end. I just walked on coals at 1,000 degrees. Tony puts two people at the end, and they lock arms, right? And they stop you. And they're like, stop, wipe your feet, and celebrate. And I'm wiping my feet, and I'm celebrating. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me. I realize I burnt myself really, really bad. And I look at my foot. I look at my right foot. It's dirty but there's no burns. Oh, it's my other foot. I look at it, yeah, same thing. It's dirty, but there's no burns. So I just walked across coals that were a thousand degrees and I did not burn myself and I didn't have a clue how I did it, right? Ever done something like that? Right, where you do something really cool, you know, and you don't even know how you did it, but you take credit for it, right? Yeah, that was me, that's this guy right here. I did that, right? Well. Here's where it gets really, really interesting. So that this is a four-day event. That was day one, the night of. Now it's day two. We're all we're coming in the next morning. We're all standing in the foyer, getting ready to go into the venue. 3,500 people. Nobody, nobody was late, by the way, or at least it didn't appear to be. Everybody was on time. And I've never seen or witnessed anything ever like this. I've never seen a group of people come together that don't know each other who are connecting at this level. People were laughing. They were crying. They were telling their stories. They were hugging. It was one of the most beautiful interactions between human beings that I've ever seen or witnessed in my entire life. Well, later in the event, I met one of Tony's trainers, and a guy by the name of Ted Macy, really sweet guy. In fact, him and his wife, Mary, 
they're out of Atlanta. They, they worked for Tony for many years. And so I'm just talking to Ted, fascinating guy. We're talking about it. And I made a comment. I said, man, it must be really awesome to be able to come and be in this environment on a regular basis to be exposed to this kind of encouragement and motivation. And he goes, oh, yeah, I get to do this eight, 10 times a year. And I go, oh, man, that must be awesome. And he goes, hey, you see all those people standing over there with the black shirts and the pink writing on the back? Yeah. He goes, dude, they're volunteers. They're people just like you. They came to a firewalk and have come back to volunteer. So he said, do this. When you get home, call Robin's Research. Tell them you want an application for a volunteer crew, and they'll send you one. And I did. I filled it out. I sent it back. Nine weeks later, I get a letter in the mail. It says, Dave Alvin, congratulations. You've been selected to crew with the Anthony Robbins Company in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Well, guess what? My foot was in the door. Now, I volunteered up to that point like five or six times before they actually um, offered me a position, right? And so, and you know, I, I had to pay my way. So you have to buy your air ticket, your hotel, your travel. It's like $2,000 every time I wanted to go. So I'm spending $2,000. And my wife is going, uh, who the hell is this Tony Robbins guy? I'm about up to here, you spending $2,000 every time you want to go to an event. Well, when they, when they look at your application, they know kind of where to put you. Right. I had a military background and a security background. So they put me on the security team to help take care of Tony celebrities, which I could talk to you about a whole nother show just on that part of it alone. And then because I lived on a farm, I knew how to use tools, log splitter, this kind of thing. They put me on the fire building team, which is exactly where I wanted to go. And so this was 95, 96. Um, and they offered me a subcontracting position where they were literally gonna pay my way, pay my airfare, pay my hotel, pay me a per diem. And they gave, my, they gave me a free ticket so my wife could come. So I took her. And uh, after the event, when she graduated, we walked on the beach and she looked at me and she goes, David, I get it. Okay, I, dr I drank the Kool-Aid, it's all good. You want, wherever you wanna go with this guy, you go. And so she opened the door and I did. And so this was all happening in the, you know, in the late 90s. And then 2003, uh, Tony offered me the captain's position. And what that meant is I would take over all of Tony's firewalks globally. So wow. That was in o yeah, that was in 03. 05, we set the world record. We went to London, to the Docklands, to the Excel Center, and we firewalked the biggest group in our planet's history. We've, we firewalked 12,300 people. Now I say it's a world record. I want to be full disclosure here. The Guinness Book of World Records was not there. However, <laughs> there's never been a firewalk anywhere close to that as far as I know. In fact, the only firewalk that's ever come, any, come close to that would, it would be another Tony Robbins seminar. <laughs> and then my life took another amazing turn. In 2014, I'm driving down the road and my phone rings and it's Google. And they're like, hey, are you the Dave Alvin that does the firewalks for Tony Robbins? Yeah. What can I do for you? They said, well, if you're not under any contractual obligation or non-compete, we'd like to talk to you about hiring you. And I'm like, well, you know, homeboy's a free agent. You know, I can do whatever I want. What you guys got going? And so they started telling me about a program that they had for 148 of their executives that had been in a nine-month curriculum. And that was, and the program was engineered by the University of North Carolina, where in the state where I live, and they wanted to do a firewalk, but they wanted to do it in the middle of the day, 
And I said, guys, I can't do it in the middle of the day. That's a safety issue. I need to be able to see those coals and we can only do it at night or at least twilight. I said, now what we could do is we could do a glass walk instead. And they said, a glass walk? I go, yeah, I'll teach them how to walk on broken glass. And they're like, ooh, tell us about that. <laughs> so um, they went for it. And so, wow. I did my, and so in 2014, that's when Firewalk Productions was born. And uh, no pun intended, but we've been going hot and heavy ever since. Wow. Well, and David, we have like about 10 more minutes left. And I know we want to be able to ask a couple questions because sure. I'm sure there's some really amazing insights that you have gained through all of these experiences and your journey that led you up to doing that full-time, which is just remarkable. What are some of the, a, a key moment that you noticed in working with individuals year after year after year in this? What is that thing that you just go, ah, they got it, or you see something really transformational happen? Uh, they're managing their state, state management, um, and they're regimented, and they're disciplined, and they're consistent. That's the key. You, consistency beats out skill. Um, at least it has been for me. Um, you know, we were talking before the show, you know, my son just, uh, graduated from app state, um, and he put himself through school. He got it all figured out on his own. I mean, I helped him a little bit, but he did it all. And so he, his focus, his determination, failure was not an option with him. He knew what he wanted to do, but he waited, right? He waited until he came to me one day and he goes, dad, I know what I want to do. And I go, what do you want to do? He goes, yeah, computer engineering, computer science. Heck, he built his first computer when he was 12 years old. So he did. He got Bella Grants. Uh, he went to a community college. Um, he went through that. Got He got a 4.0 all the way through school. And then he was accepted by App State, right here where we live. And um, and now he just got a job. And, you know, I think they started him you know, right at $110,000 a year. Um, and with all the benefits. And, you know, and he loves it. He loves what, his, what he does. So here's what I believe. You know, uh, I think every human, the two most important moments, the moment you're born, the moment you figure out why. And I believe that, you know, one of my mentors told me one time, he said, you know, David, every human's got two lives. And the second one starts when you figure, when you realize you have only one. Um, I think, again, from, uh, if, if I had to do it over, of course, again, if, you know, that's kind of a rough question for me because I am in such extraordinary place. And I had to go through all those failures. I had to go through all those problems. I had to get all those different things in my life figured out so I could get to where I am today. Because what doesn't challenge you doesn't change you. It's not going to happen. You're not going to sit in a classroom and, it's, you know, have these multiple, you know, how do you become a Navy SEAL? Not sitting in a classroom. You know, they put you in the water off the coast of San Onofre and you swim with sharks. And that's where you become, you know, that's where greatness its greatness is so you know back to your question amy it would just really be state management stay focused stay determined determined you know how do you become great at anything it goes back to consistency Ten thousand hours you mm -hmm. want to be an outstanding guitar player Ten thousand hours you want to be a pianist Ten thousand hours you want jujitsu mastery anything in life you want mastery it's typically around ten thousand hours wow capri you have any questions I just, I cannot fathom the fire walking because my like biggest fear is being burned. Yeah. How do you get people to do, how do you get people to do that? And like, what's the mental part of that where you're just like, oh, I can do yeah. it and you go yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do this a lot. I'm faced with this a lot. 
You know, uh-huh. up until my firewalk, fear had controlled everything, right? So mm-hmm. it was forget everything and run, right? Well, after I firewalked, that whole act, that whole idea changed because I went from forget everything and run to face everything and rise. What we like to say in AA is false images appearing real. Uh, typically, fear is exhilaration without the breath. Let me say that again. Fear is exhilaration without the breath. Typically, when we're fearful of something, what do we do? We hold our breath, right? We go, and we don't breathe. So typically, when I see somebody struggling, you know, and they're scared to death, right? When, it, when, when you're standing in front of those skulls and looking down, you're right, Capri, it's scary. It's really spooky. And so typically what I do is I go and I do what to them what they did to me. Eyes up. Take a nice deep breath in for me. Relax. Trust the process. You're going to be okay. This is going to be one of the most extraordinary moments of your life. You will never forget it. Now take another breath for me. So I get them to breathe and I fill their lungs with oxygen. And then once you get into that third breath, I'll say, when we exhale here, I'm going to say three, two, one. And a lot of times, if, assuming it's a female, I'll offer to hold their hand. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. But, you know, my job is to get them across that fire because the transformation is right over there in the celebration end, right? And sure, sure enough, they come out of that breath. I go three, two, one, and boom, they go. And um, I let the fire do what the fire does. It's literally one of the most transformational moments any human can go through. Firewalking has been around a thousand years, right? We're not, it's like Tony Robbins didn't figure this out on his own, right? Uh, the Fahitians, the people of India, the uh, Indo-Europeans, the, the warriors before they went into battle always did a firewalk the night before. The Polynesians, the Hawaiians, the Native American Indians right here in, in, the, in, the country, in our country. I live up here in the Appalachian Mountains and we had the Cherokees. The Cherokees did their firewalking. So it's a really, it's just a really magical moment to help shift your belief system. Because here's the thing. Once you walk on coals that are a thousand degrees, here's the question I would I would ask you to ask yourself: If I can walk on coals that are a thousand degrees and not burn myself, what else can I do? Hmm. Um, when I speak, when I get hired by companies to hire me, um, I typically put a picture of a guy behind me on the screen, and I'll talk for a half an hour, getting getting them ready for the glass walk or the fire walk, and. And or whatever the CEO wants me to talk about, right? You know, they're launching a new product or whatever. And then uh, I'll stop and I'll go, by the way, who here can tell me where this gentleman behind me, where he's standing? Well, you can tell. It's, it's Mount Everest. And they go, you know, somebody will go, Mount Everest. And I'll say, yeah, that's correct. And this is Eric Weinmeyer. And I want to tell you something about Eric. He's climbed the seven highest mountains on seven continents. Wow. He is an unbelievable mountain bike rider. He can ride like you wouldn't believe. And put him in a kayak, he can negotiate just about any river on earth. But let me tell you something about Eric. He's blind. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. There's not one person in this room that probably has told themselves something that they did that they wanted to do, but they talked themselves out of it. So if a blind man can climb the seven highest mountains on earth, what do you think you could do? And so I asked, why don't people get what they want in life? I always pose that question. And they'll say, you know, oh, you know, they're not focused. They're not determined. They didn't write their goals down. All those questions, all those answers are right. But people make up stuff, right? I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the education. I don't have the background. You know, my parents don't love me. They, you know, I mean, on and on and on and on and on. And the bottom line is people don't get what they want in life because there's a story they tell themselves 
about why they can't have it. Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most difficult books you'll ever read, and I highly recommend it. It's not easy, but here's the pearl of wisdom that he left us in the book. He was in Auschwitz. They assassinated his family. Every single day, standing in the yard, cold, naked, with all the other prisoners. He doesn't know whether he's going to go to the chamber that day. Every single day, he lived with that. And so how do you get out of that? Well, here's what he, here's what he figured out. You can take everything from me. Take my clothes. Don't feed me. Beat me. Make me stand in the cold. Make me fear death every single day. But there's one thing you'll never take from me unless I decide to let, it, let you have it and relinquish it. And that's my attitude. And he decided, you're not getting my attitude. So how he got himself out of Auschwitz and how he lived to write the book was he found what? Purpose. He knew that someone needed to tell that story. And that's what he did. Tell your story. Tell your story. Create a good one. It's your story. You create it. You can create a masterpiece. And, you know, my, my, my big thing is, you know, just don't blame someone or something on, on, on your life. Because you're in control. You're the architect. You've got, you've got your hand on the on and off switch, and you've got your hand on the volume. No matter what's happened to you in your past, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't. So there's a purpose for you out there. Go connect with it. Thank you, Dave. Ed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know we're almost out of time. I just have one question. Um, Dave, maybe you can answer before we we get out of here. Um, you said something in the beginning about how people look at Tony Robbins and they're like, what's up with that guy? And you said you had the same yeah. thought process. But when Google calls, that's a little bit different, right? You're like, well, that's an established <laughs> multi-billion dollar company. So I'm kind of curious if they explain to you their why. Why did they want their executives who went through a nine-month program to experience this glass walk or fire walk. I think if I'm a young person, I might turn my head and go, yeah, Tony Robbins is a weirdo. But Google has a pretty interesting reputation and billions of dollars. Why would they spend it on having, what's their why? Why would they spend it on having somebody yeah. like why would permit? Exactly right. Why would they do that? What did they know that the rest of the world maybe didn't, right? Did they know something? Well, what did they have? They had 148 executives had gone through a very intense nine-month curriculum. They were graduating. They wanted to give them lunch. They wanted to give them their certificates. And they wanted to anchor in the experience. That's what they decided to do. They knew. They wanted to do the firewalk to anchor it in. But that wasn't an option. So they knew they'd do it with the glass walk. And since you asked me this, Ed, why not just throw this out there? So when I'm there, uh, at lunch, I'm sitting at one of the tables. There's eight of us at a table. And two of the Google executives, both females, started asking me questions. And then one of them just blurted it out. She said, you don't know what you have, do you? You don't even know why we called you, do you? I said, well, you know, I, I'm get, you wanted a powerful experience, something that would create a paradigm shift. And she said, yeah. And she said, look, I know you, you're with Tony. And you can do whatever you want, but let me, let me share something with you. You might want to think about starting your own business because there's a huge, huge marketplace and a demand for somebody like you that can create these kinds of experiences. 
So, you know, for what it's worth, we wanted to let you know that. And that's when the light bulb went off. I went, oh, okay. Well, if Google's telling me that I should take these life-changing experiences out there and offer them to corporate America, maybe I should do it. Mm-hmm. And I did. I was like, you know, it doesn't take a brick house to fall on me to for it to go, okay. You know, and it is. So now I've seen it. I witnessed it. You know, they were 100% right. Um, there's a book called Stealing Fire. And uh, Google's in it. And they talk about that exact question. What's going on? You know, how does how does an Olympian get to the Olympics? You know, they're they're in a constant state of mind all the time. I think Amy can probably relate to this being, um, uh, you know, an actress and, and, and a musician and a singer and so on. There's a level. It's called the zone. Right. We we know what it looks like. We know what it yeah. acts like. Michael Jordan. Kobe Bryant. They're in the zone. Right. Yep. So, and so how do you get there? Well, Firewalk is one way you can do it, and they know that. So that's that's why they, you know, that's why they brought me in. Wow. Thank you, Dave. Powerful, powerful story and incredible words of wisdom today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Amy. So you guys ready to get out of here? We've taken enough of Dave's time. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm fine, guys. I'm I'm here to serve, so it doesn't matter to me. Well, we got to go. So let's kind of put this thing. Um, together i i gotta tell you it's a fascinating story dave i i was riveted by the whole thing and i think for young people out there who are trying to figure out what their why is yeah. either the literal firewalk or the proverbial firewalk go yeah. figure out what that is like your son did and then yeah. execute that plan mm-hmm. um, well i'm a sucker we- yeah i'm a i'm a sucker for the kids you know uh, <laughs> give me kids uh i'm the type of guy give me because you know something i've done here uh is i add the board break to the firewalk Right. It's a martial arts move. Right. Yes. You go to a dojo, you know, you get you go from a white belt to a yellow belt, whatever. You typically break a board. Right. So you'll break yeah. it with your, you'll break it with your hand. Yeah. Right. Your hand, your elbow. Mm-hmm. You'll break it with your knee, your foot, whatever. And you graduate. Well, I decided to bring that experience into the firewalk. But here's what I did with it. I have them write anything on front of that board they want to move towards. Mm-hmm. I have them put anything on the back of that board that they want to move away from. And then I have them write anybody's name on the board they're in conflict with. So a forgiveness or reconciliation is part of that relationship. Put their name on the board. That ends tonight. Stop carrying around anger and resentment. It does not serve you and it will get in the way of you being successful and happy. So mm-hmm. it stops tonight. And then to create the rite of passage, what I do is I have them write anybody's name on the board that they've lost. Right? Because so now that becomes generational. It becomes ancestral. And so we go outside, beautiful, boom, break the board. They walk a circle. We come back. We firewalk them and then we come back and they throw their boards in the fire and then we get it on video and then we get the photos of it so give me some kids and and let me take them through that experience um and i'll rock their world because it's all it all do comes that. down to write that on a piece of cardboard and break right through it <laughs> well, good luck with that that cardboard uh, that for, cardboard's not as forgiving as that board i can tell you that I hear uh, but you know what i mean imagine taking a nine-year-old kid and have them break a board and they do a firewalk you think that's going to affect them growing up you think yeah. that's yeah. going to raise their self-belief their self-confidence or their self-worth you better believe it is and and let me share something with you in new york back in the day back in like 2002 i think uh, both my kids firewalked for the first time. My daughter, Abby, was six. My son, Dave Jr., was nine. Wow. We're at a Bo- Robin's event. We're in New York. 
We walked all the participants. Tony knew that they were going to walk that night. They were standing over in the shadows. As soon as we were all done, Tony brought them over. Here comes my daughter, six years old. And she come walking up. And Wow, you guys, I'm sorry. Tony took her by the hand. I took her by the other hand. And I walked her across the fire. Um, Davey, Davey stepped up. Uh, Tony looked at him and he said, I love you and I love your daddy. Go. <laughs> um, you guys, I don't I don't know what to tell you other than it's one of the most magnificent guests, gifts you can give any kid. We've lost rite of passage in this country. It's not around anymore. And, and so this experience will do that, especially for kids. It doesn't matter what they've gone through. You know, and I tell kids all the time, listen, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. You are the deciding factor. You're the one who decides. And so make a good decision. So I can tell you that, you know, that's my sweet spot. And so there's lots of companies out there, corporate people that need to spend money and they want to sponsor. Great. Come get me. Let's go. Let's go firewalk some kids and change their lives. Let's go firewalk some veterans. We're losing 22 a day, they say. Yeah. It's actually higher than that. That's only for the ones that leave a note. It's up closer to 40. Uh, first responders, all of them, all the ones that have really bad PTSD, they're committing suicide like crazy. My idea is to create the do no harm firewalk. And so you, I've got 300 vets sitting in a room. I, I make them take an oath. They're going to raise their hand and they're going to promise to do no harm as I take them out there into that parking lot to do that firewalk. I'll do the board break, do the whole, whole nine yards. Right. And then one of the things we can give them so that they can, you know, have it in their room or their office or whatever is these. These are the calls from a firewalk. They can set it, look at it every day. It says on there, I firewalked with the do no harm firewalk. Mm-hmm. We can give them necklaces. Uh, one of my cool companies that I love, and I'm not running a commercial here, but it's Zippo Lighter. And so we can make them a lighter. It's got the logo on it. We're actually Zippo. I'm going to I'm going to MIT next week. I got a firewalk there at the Endicott House in Boston. And when I'm done, I'm coming back through Bradbury, Pennsylvania to Zippo. And Mark Paul, who's the CEO, is going to him and his team are going to give me a tour um, uh, of the plant. So they want to work with us really you know, closely uh, to help save veterans because no one else is going to do it. So I'm just I'm just putting it out there that. You know, if the right company wants to come along or people or whoever, and you really want to make a difference in the world, I've got a, I've got a way to do that. Love it. Thanks, Dave. Let's get out of here because uh, I got to go. <laughs> it was awesome, but we got to wrap it up. So on behalf of our guest, Dave Albin, uh, this is the uh, Education, Career, and Beyond podcast. And we're definitely on the beyond side. I mean, there's fascinating. There's an element about this of education and purpose and your why. So thanks for joining us, Dave. On behalf of Capri, Amy, and myself, again, this is the Education, Career, and Beyond podcast. And it's a great episode. We have a number of them up there. So if you stumble on it and you like it, give us a thumbs up. If you think this message that Dave gave us today is important, please share it with somebody. We always have fascinating guests and conversations, so subscribe and you can get it delivered right to your inbox. Guess what? That's all the time we got. We'll see you next time on the on the podcast. Ciao.